Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And you're probably wondering where I've been these past couple of weeks. Well, uh, <laughs> as I recently told fellow saloner Groove, well, I've just been goofing off. You see, uh, once the end of the year holiday season came around, I thought that, uh, well, I'd just take a week off and just do some reading and maybe binge watch a few shows. But uh, you know what they say about it only taking 30 days to form a new habit? Well, uh, <laughs> I think that only applies to starting a new habit that isn't a lot of fun. However, I found that it only takes about three days to form a habit of goofing off. <laughs> and uh, so I just got lazy. But uh, when a fellow septuagenarian-like groove wonders about where I've been, I, uh, well, I figured that it may be time for me to resurface so that you don't think I've kicked the bucket. And uh, I don't foresee that happening any time for at least another decade or so. Uh, so I'm still here. And I still have a lot of things that I want to do. Uh, and now I've just wasted a few weeks by not doing any of them. Uh, so uh, it's time for me to get back to the business of podcasting and writing and a few other things I want to do. But first of all, I want to thank fellow saloners, Light Spirit Essentials, Victor B., Ryan Q., Andrew D. and Angel R., all of whom made donations that are going to be used to offset some of our expenses this year. And I thank you all very much. Now, uh, before I introduce today's program, I want to let you know that at the end of this podcast, I'll tell you about a few steps that I've taken to get the Salon 2.0 rolling along sooner than I originally planned. And the headline is that in addition to new programs coming out under the Salon 2 name, I'll also continue to do these podcasts as I've been doing for almost 12 years now. But with the addition of the Salon 2 programming, there should be at least one new program every week. Uh, but I'll be sharing the workload of doing them with some of our fellow Saloners. And uh, there will also be a way for you to become involved if that's something that you want to do. But first, uh, let's get on with what will be the first podcast from the Salon in the year 2017, which should prove to be a very interesting year. Uh, interesting, uh, that is, in the sense that train wrecks are also interesting. <laughs> anyway, for our first talk of the year, it seemed to me that it would be appropriate for us all to get back into the groove by reminding ourselves about the importance of keeping our private communications and web surfing just that, private. And in my opinion, there are very few people in the world that are better able to answer our questions about online security than John Gilmore. Now, if you do a search on John, you're going to find that he is a man of many interests and has accomplished more than most of us even dream of. But today he comes to the Salon as uh, one of the founders of the Electronic Frontier Foundation, EFF, which has been working to secure our digital rights longer than any other group that I know of. I should also mention that John is an integral member of Camp Soft Landing, where the Planque Norte lectures are hosted at Burning Man each year, and he's been a friend of the Salon's podcast ever since they began. Now, just a heads up, but about 55 minutes from now, John is going to be talking about the spyware that tracks you through any email lists that you are on. 
Even if you are a security techie guru and don't want to listen to this entire talk, I highly recommend that you listen to what he has to say about companies that send out mailing lists for people. Maybe I've been out of the tech world for too long now, but this was really news to me, and I think it's important news. So now uh, let's join John Gilmore and some friends on the Burning Man Playa at Black Rock City last August as he answers their most burning questions. Next up is John Gilmore, co-founder of the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Hello, folks. Hi. Crowd on up. <laughs> yeah, right. So, so I'm really here basically to answer your questions. So if you don't have any questions, we can all just go back to having conversations. But... Um, I've worked on drug policy for 16 years. I worked in free software for like 25 years. Um, Co-founded the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Been to Burning Man for 18 or 19 years. You know, so I got a bunch of things you could ask me about. But uh, I don't know what you actually want to hear about. So raise your hand. Are your emails from 2003 accessible to some grand jury? Is that kind of the question? Well... Well, it really depends who you sent them to and where you and the other recipients keep them. Like if you keep them in Gmail, they probably keep them forever. They were sent to somebody else, so they would have to go to the somebody else to get them. Well, in the UK, things are a bit different where the GCHQ has actually tried like tapping every packet that went through the international cables just to see if they could and what they could dig out of it. And they declined to say how much of it they keep or how long they keep it. So basically, the NSA can only collect information if it is relevant to a couple of broad categories. And one of them is the foreign policy of the United States, which means anything you say that affects anything that the U.S. does with any other country or any other citizen of any other country then, you know, it's kind of a fair game if they want to claim it affects the foreign policy. Ordering drugs from somewhere. Hello, come on in. Yeah, if you, if you order drugs across an international border using email, somebody's probably reading that email. If you were to recommend a means of digital communication um, that, is less, that is more secure, what means of digital communication would you recommend? Well, it, it depends, you know, it depends is the answer. The, when smuggling contraband into Burma, what people have been doing is filling up USB sticks and walking them across the river from another country. Sneakernet. Yeah, sneaker net. And uh, this is how all sorts of forbidden Western video and things like that are getting into that closed society because you can carry a lot on like a 32 gig USB stick these days but if you're talking about like how do I send email or text messages to somebody um, there's an app called Signal that a lot of people seem to uh, depend on I haven't used it myself but uh, I know a lot of people who do in general, one of the things that Edward Snowden taught us is that encryption actually tends to work. 
like really, you know, academically vetted, properly encrypted, more or less bug-free encryption will actually keep the NSA from reading your stuff. But it's easy to make mistakes, and that's usually how they get you. Um, but it keeps your stuff out of the sort of vacuum cleaner trawl where they're just looking for anything interesting. You know, if you come to their attention and they actually go to the trouble to break into your computer, then they can watch you as you type it before you ever encrypt it, for example. But they're not doing that to everybody because it would be too easy to catch them at it. Do I have any insight into how pervasive parallel construction is? Um, I think it's fairly pervasive. Um, we've only... This, this is the uh, method where the cops uh, use some illegal means to get the information that they want about you, and then they go back later and find another legal means and prosecute you with that. Uh, we found a bunch of FBI memos that said, well, um, here's a, a way of finding people using what they called stingrays, these uh, fake cell sites that pretend to offer cell phone service that has a stronger signal than the main cell phone towers, and then your phone will latch onto them, and all your calls will go through them, and also your phone will identify itself to them, saying, this is Trip's phone. Anytime somebody calls Trip, it should come here. Um, those, uh, the FBI was teaching all these local police departments how to do this, but they also told them, you can't let any of this information get into a court case because that will jeopardize this uh, law enforcement technique. So instead, you have to do parallel construction that once you found somebody through this or you heard there was going to be a drug deal or whatever, then you have to like plant a cop on the corner there who just happens to notice somebody drive up and do a drug deal. And then you can bust them for that. And you never tell them that you actually heard it over, the, uh, in the, over this uh, cell phone interceptor. And I mean, we actually got documents that said, lie to the courts about where you got this information. So, also just what I've learned about drug policy in the last 16 years is uh, the practice of police lying on the stand in order to secure a conviction is so common and so popular that it has its own word. It's called testilying. And I think it's pretty common. When I myself was busted years ago in an illegal search, I told my lawyer, well, this is an illegal search. They can't get me for this. And he said, well, kid, the cop will just lie and the judge will believe him, not you. And that's still how it is, as far as I can tell. Anybody else? No questions? Am I going to have to ask you guys questions? <laughs> I actually have 36 questions, but I was going to let other people ask them first. But my next question is, uh, what are the main goals of the EFF uh, in the coming year? What, what are you aiming at uh, trying to accomplish? 
The main goals of EFF, okay. Well, oh, there, uh, EFF used to be a small organization and it was easier to keep track of its main goals. There are now between 70 and 80 people working at EFF, all funded by you folks, who, you know, the folks among you who are members. And they're working on so many things, I even find it hard to keep track of it. But fundamentally, they are trying to, to ease the integration of electronic communications and computing into society, um, trying to cause as few expectations to be broken, trying to cause as, few, as little damage as possible to long-standing principles, um, things like privacy and free expression and all of that, are all changed as we all move our communications online. And sometimes those changes are beneficial and sometimes not so much. And so we try, our goals are to explain those changes to people so they understand what's going on and to try to both steer the society and steer the technology in directions that are positive and beneficial. So ameliorate the privacy problems that come when computers are involved in every interaction you make and they're leaving detailed audit trails of everything you do. And at the same time trying to make real the opportunities that come from that, like the opportunity to communicate in privacy and in security with your friends no matter where they are on the earth. So when it comes down to doing that, there's a lot of detail. Our first five years were mostly spent on censorship issues. Um, in the U.S., the Communications Decency Act and things like that which we ultimately beat in the Supreme Court. We got this great decision that said, you know, that, that um, an, a message posted over the Internet should, you know, have the same protection under the law as, you know, the lonely pamphleteer who was around in the days of the American Revolution. Um, the next uh, amount of time, a lot of that was spent on wiretapping and surveillance and things like that. And then we spent another five or 10 years on copyright. And once Hollywood figured out that their revenue streams were threatened by the internet because they were no longer the monopoly or oligopoly providers of entertainment, then there was a lot of trouble with them trying to shut down anybody who made it possible to get any kind of music or movies or whatever that you wanted that didn't involve going through them. Um, then we got involved post 9-11 again in wiretapping and encryption and things like that. Somewhere along the lines, uh, patents became a big deal and uh, we have a, a long-standing effort now that is, uh, uh, we nominate a stupid patent every month and we try to get it canceled. 
Let's see. You'd have to look on the blog to know what the exact last one was. But a lot of these come along the lines of uh, do something that people have already been doing for 100 years. Ah, good. There's an endless parade of people trying to manipulate the system when the system involves having the government give you a 20-year monopoly on something. Because then you can extract money from people for 20 years if you can manage to manipulate it that way. And that's what a patent is. New methods of surveillance that we should be aware of. Mm, let's see. Well... Have you heard of Edward Snowden? <laughs> um, he was a contractor at the National Security Agency, and he decided that they had gone beyond the pale, that instead of spying on foreigners for the benefit of the American government, they had turned to spying on Americans for, the, you know, for their own benefit. And he brought with him a huge cache of documents about what they were doing, which they had been keeping secret from us for decades. And he gave them to various people in the press who have been reading through them and publishing them and writing stories about them. Um, what we learned is that they are wiretapping pretty much anything they want to wiretap domestically or over the, around the world. And they're filtering through that stuff with a system that looks for who's talking to who and saving that data for a long, long time. The idea is if, if 10 years or 20 years from now you do something interesting to them, they want to be able to go back and look at every person you ever communicated with for your entire life. Where did you get these ideas? Who are you collaborating with? How can we stop you from doing the thing that now threatens them, whether it's good for society or bad? And so they're collecting not the content of your communications necessarily, but who's talking to who. And they'll use that not for your benefit, of course. So that's, that's one form of communication. But yeah, go ahead. Besides government surveillance, what other uh, court cases, like currently in progress, are the highest priority of EFF? Okay. Well, yeah, we are suing the NSA over government surveillance, and that's been going on for about a decade. And so far, we still have not gotten the courts to give us a straightforward answer. Is what they're doing illegal or not? Um, but... We have probably 30 or 40 other cases going on at any given time. About half of them are freedom of information cases where we're, we have asked the government for documents about stingrays or documents about patent policies or whatever, and they haven't answered. Or they sent us minimal info, and we know they have more, and we have to sue them over it. So those, those are the sort of less interesting cases until if and when they turn up with real documents that show what's going on. But the more interesting cases are where we're involved in trying to litigate a particular policy issue that affects a lot of people. So one example, we call it the dancing baby case. And 
it's about a uh, a mom who shot a little short video, like less than a minute, of her toddler dancing in the kitchen with a Prince song in the background that the that the uh, the baby is dancing to. She put that up on YouTube so that the baby's grandma could see it, and Prince's lawyers had YouTube take it down. And the reason is because it had 15 seconds of a Prince song in it. Well, we thought this was insane, and uh, we took this through the courts, and it's been, it's been a slow case, but it's... Uh, we got a good ruling out of it that basically said if you're building a censorship system for copyrighted material which is what this takedown process is you have to go to some effort to not censor things that are allowed to be there so if you put up a complete copy of a Prince song and you go here download this Prince song they can take it down. And that's valid under the law. But if the Prince song is incidental to what you're really doing, and it doesn't actually impact the market for Prince songs, then you have a right under the fair use doctrine to make use of that song in accomplishing your own communication. And the record companies had instead built a system that just looked for any snippet of any song that they owned and say, take it down without ever even having a human look at it or listen to it to say, were they making a fair use of it? Was this transformative? Was this educational? Was this incidental? Did this meet any of the criteria for legality? And we got a court ruling that said they have to do that. They if they're going to do to use this mechanism that says you send a letter to the website and it has to take it down you have to certify that it really violates your copyright and it doesn't violate your copyright if it's a fair use so the record companies of course are fighting this because it means rather than using a robot to take down everything they actually have to have someone watch each of these things and make a judgment call as to whether it's worth it. But it's more important to have an uncensored communications medium than to save the record company's money. Yes. Hello. Uh, flow artists are currently being attacked. Sorry. Flow artists are currently being attacked on Facebook and their videos are being destroyed because of this, because of copyright issues. Um, my curiosity lies around that kind of gray area of how much of that uh, song, so let's say maybe if it's three minutes versus you know the full three minute and 15 seconds, where do you really draw that line where it no longer becomes okay for let's say an individual user to have that playing in the background of their video versus it actually infringing on their copyright? Right. Well, it turns out there's an answer to this but you won't like it much. Seven notes. <laughs> Seven notes. It's uh, now, the, the, this is the law from, from an older era that if you wrote a song and then somebody else writes, wrote a song and it's similar, 
if you copied seven notes from the first song, then his copyright controls it. Um, because, you know, think of how many ways you could generate seven notes. There are a lot of different ways. If you uh... Well, to build on that, the video isn't, the focus isn't primarily the music. It's primarily the art that's being performed. And so does that still tie into the seven-note, I guess, rule? Yes, it does. It just happens to be um, in the background? Now, it turns out it used to be hard to transform other people's material into new artistic forms that way. But technology has brought us the ability to just grab a chunk of music from here and some video from there and some imagery and some computer-generated stuff and merge it all together into a new art form. Even just the process of sampling other people's music and incorporating it into a song has generated a whole lot of controversy as far as what, sh what does the law say now and what should the law say to enable both people to make a living at music and also for there to be freedom of artistic expression. That balance has not yet been worked out. And so a lot of people are going to fall into those cracks and be hurt by being on one side or the other, either by deciding, oh, I can't do flow acts because it's all going to get me in trouble, and so I just won't be creative that way, versus, oh, I'm just going to do it, and then I'm going to get caught, and I'm going to get sued, you know, and my house will get taken away. Or you find the alternative in between and you find independent artists that can then upload their music and allow it for free distribution, which is now happening. Right. Well, so one of the classic ways around this problem is for artists to f who, who could have locked down their music to freely choose to let other people reuse it. And that's called the open content movement. And it, has, it started actually in the free software movement with software, and then a really smart guy named Larry Lessig, who was studying the free, free software movement, realized, oh, we could make easy ways for people to do this with things other than software. And he wrote, he started the Creative Commons organization and wrote the original Creative Commons licenses. And uh, by now, hundreds of millions of works have been licensed by their creators under these licenses and they've made five or six of them that give you different bits of control so you can say for example anyone can do anything they want with this with my song or my drawing or my words as long as they just attribute it to me let people know that I wrote it and otherwise do what you want that's the CC by license you just have to tell them who it's by there's also a non-commercial version that says you can do anything you want as long as you're not making money from it. There's a, a share-alike version that says you can do anything you want with my material if you give all the recipients of your material the same right. So you can build on mine if you let other people build on yours. And these ways of easily marking your material make it possible for people who want to build new material to find collaborators who they don't have to negotiate with, who they can just go, 
oh, he put that song up under a CC BY license. It means I can use it, and he's not going to sue me. My question yes. was, how do they market? But you're, I think you just answered that. They, it's the license, it's a certain type of license that they, oh, yeah. they have. Oh. So the way you market is, first you say copyright you know, by you on such and such a year, and then you say uh, CC licensed under this particular license and they have little logos and things like that you can put in for graphics or you can use the words and it has a link out to the main legal text of the license and also to an explanation of what it means but fundamentally once you've gone through this a few times and you've clicked through the link and looked at it then you realize oh anytime I see this CC in a circle it means Creative Commons, and it means I've got the right, instead of all rights reserved under copyright, it means some rights reserved, and the public can do other things. Is, is this widely used now? It is very widely used. Um, yeah. Um, Cory Doctorow, who's going to speak here tomorrow, releases all of his science fiction books under the Creative Commons license. There are millions of pictures people have uploaded to Flickr and other places like that that are specifically marked with Creative Commons licenses. Um, everything you find in Wikipedia is licensed under a Creative Commons license. And so you're free to extract that and use it in other works. In the back. Um, what do you think is going to happen with these recent attempts to ban end-to-end -end encryption, like in the UK, the Snoopers Charter, are any of these governments actually going to try to do that? And if so, how would it play out? Like, is a company like Apple, are they going to just pull out and not do business, or are they going to rewrite their system to comply? How do you see this, uh, this kind of issue playing out? It's an interesting question. Um, it's not a new issue. It's actually been an ongoing issue for a while. Um, ten years ago, if you had a BlackBerry cell phone, the texts that went from a black one BlackBerry to another were encrypted and were not readable without the help of the BlackBerry company. Now... It turns out part of the reason for this was they were marketing these to a bunch of companies. And if the company put a BlackBerry server into their own data center, then the messages could only be uh, intercepted by going through the company's server. So even BlackBerry couldn't get at them. And this was a... a a big deal for places like stock brokerages, you know, financial institutions, places where leakage of information can cause large amounts of money to slosh around in bad ways. India got upset by this. They, and they eventually they went to BlackBerry and said, you can't sell these phones in our country because we can't wiretap them. Cops could go to BlackBerry with a subpoena and try to get this stuff. But the problem is a lot of governments are monitoring things that they don't want you to know they're monitoring. They don't want companies to know they're monitoring. And also, BlackBerry was based in Canada. 
which is kind of inconvenient for people, for cops in the United States who didn't want to have to go through a whole international hoorah just to wiretap the guy who they're suspecting of selling marijuana or something. Back to privacy. Uh, 360 video is now coming out big around, rather expensive still, but coming out. Then Can't quite hear you. 360 video, the spherical video that takes here, unlike just roar or usual videos, you have control over where the camera's looking. In a 360 system, it's taking pictures all the way around you at the same time. So for documentaries and so forth, there's a whole question about how you direct people to look here and not at the guy running around doing something else over there. Have the EFF looked at the 360 privacy question at all? No, that one hasn't come up for us. It's still sufficiently small of a niche, and it also sounds like it's... In some ways, it's sort of a cinematography thing. Like, if you're actually trying to capture something in 360, but you want to direct people's attention here, what techniques do you use to do that? Not really our issue at this point. But the guy doing something else behind it that he wanted his privacy, people like him here, if they were doing 360 video and not wanting to be in uh-huh. the video. Right. I think we have a 360 video camera <laughs> in the room. Well, if you're recording video of people in all directions, especially if you're actually doing it for public release, you should be getting permission from those people. And if the camera can see more people, you need more people to give you permission. You may need to black them out if you can't get their permission. Hi. Um, I was wondering about net neutrality as it applies to Internet of Things. For example, um, the content self-driving cars are collecting and um, you know, how do we ensure uh, that as our roads are used by corporations um, and self-driving cars, uh, how do we maintain sovereignty over the commons? Um, you know, because let's say an exec needs to get to work, he pushes a button and all the cars pull over for him. You know, um, so I wanted to know if uh, sort of if EFF was thinking about that. And then um, also about like um, video capture and live blogging. I know people that do live blogging um, and they're always recording everything and they go to events like this and ephemeral and other things. And I was wondering, you know, um, what can we do about that and how can we defend privacy in instances like that? Right. Um, let me take the second half first, like the live blogging thing. Do you remember a product called Google Glass? Why did it die? It died because people thought it was creepy. And when people saw you wearing Google Glass, they walked the other way. (laughs) And I think there's sort of a a social process that goes on around these things, where currently the expectation is if you walk up and talk to somebody, you're not being recorded, you're not being live-streamed to the Internet, etc. And you need to, if you're going to do those things, you need to put people on notice and let them choose whether they want to participate in that. Um, what was the first half? Uh, it was about Internet of Things. Oh, oh. And dri- self-driving cars. Yeah, yeah, the, the roads and all that. Um, that. Your question sort of wraps up a whole bunch of different aspects. One of them is 
the detailed monitoring of ordinary activities like uh, Tesla recording everything that your car is doing, every bump it hits, and every time you put, push the gas pedal down or let it off or turn the steering wheel, and uploading that you know, for later analysis, how they can improve how they make their cars. There's a lot of that going on. Most of it's going on on the web. Um, some of it's going on in apps in phones. And so far, it hasn't really escaped beyond that very far, but people keep dreaming of this Internet of Things idea. Not so much that it would help you, but that it would let them capture all sorts of stuff about you. Personally, I think we actually have to care about this. And the way I deal with it is I decline to use products that spy on me that way. So I don't do searches at Google. Um, I have uh, plugins in my browser that don't let Google Analytics run in my browser. Um, there, there are like 15 different free services that Google offers to individuals and to webmasters and things like that. Google Fonts and Captures and the Analytics and Free Search and all of that that you can drop into your site. Oh, the Like buttons. There's another big one. All of those were not provided out of the... the generosity in their hearts. All of those were provided because they provided another data stream about what each person on the web is doing. And I take pains to turn as many of them off as I can. And often I do that just by declining to use the services that come with that price. Now, the... Yeah... I'll get to you in a minute, but the inner, the uh, self-driving cars and that sort of thing. There's a there's a societal process of getting used to the idea of having robots drive us around and 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 drive around packages and things like that that aren't us and fly through the skies without human control and all of that. It's um, the traditional, the response of the traditional social and governmental systems to this has been to try to regulate it using government regulators saying, you can't sell those cars here unless they meet our criteria. You know, you can't drive that on the roads of California because we didn't pass a law that lets you, um, etc. I'm concerned that, like with many things in the government, the people who regulate that will be captured by the people who are doing the work, and they won't really end up protecting the public. So I'm more interested in actually us creating a diversity of different uh, ways of doing self-driving vehicles so that you don't just you can't just buy it from Tesla or from Ford or whatever but that there can be university projects that make self-driving cars and you could actually run that code in your car if you wanted to and in other words that these there'd be a, a whole 
ecosystem of these, and they would not only compete on how well they drive your car, but also on how much privacy they offer you. So that you could choose to have one that wasn't monitoring you everywhere you went, that wasn't telling Google every place you go, and it would give you the opportunity to make that choice. We're still a long way from there. And it'll take some smart tech work as well as some other activism and publicity and marketing and things like that to make, to make that ecosystem happen. If you haven't already covered this, do you see a way out of closed app stores and ecosystems and, and back into the realm of open standards? I'm thinking of things like the Apple App Store where there's one company with control over what code we can and can't execute. Oh, yeah. I, there, there's an obvious way out of them. Don't use them. Don't buy Apple products when they lock you in to only using software that Apple approves of. It's really straightforward. It's like, you know, don't buy food that poisons you, you know. Don't buy from companies that try to control you. Yeah, on a similar note, um, do you think it's likely that there will be any sort of regulations passed in the U.S. that are similar to those in the EU, like the right to be forgotten, that would enable users who, um, in their youth, might have been ignorant and used Facebook, and Facebook had captured all of their information, and you, you might stop using a service like Facebook, but they keep your data forever? Do you think there's any way that um, consumers will ever be able to, like, liberate themselves from Facebook and caching their data? Um, the right to be forgotten is not one of my favorite things, actually, because it's a censorship mechanism. And so far, it has mostly been used by rich people who don't want the public to find out what they've been doing uh, using particular laws in the UK. The... Um, in general, I think this issue is going to be solved by social change, not by legal change, for the most part. Um, there's, there's a significant degree of tolerance in our society for youthful indiscretions, for uh, you know kids who steal from the candy store down the block and who later figure out that this is probably not a good idea. Um, you know, they learn, they get forgiven, and nobody holds it against them when they're 40. And so the silly things that you posted on Facebook when you were 12, they'll still be out there probably, but they won't really socially come back to bite you, right? Because nobody will care. But so do you think there will ever be a way to at least have Facebook um, not keep the data forever? Like, uh, no, and stuff like I that. don't think there will be a way if you voluntarily hand over your data to a huge corporation that does not have your interest at heart for you to get the data back. No, I don't think there'll be a way. If there's any assurance, their policies say that if you delete your account, they delete all of your data within like some number of days. And they can change that policy anytime they want. <laughs> yeah, with new consent language, yeah. So recently there was a case of a photographer who had donated thousands of her images uh, to the public domain and uh, she got a cease and desist letter, letter uh, saying that she was um, uh, uh, 
I guess, distributing images that were owned by the Getty uh, Institute. Uh, are you familiar with the case? I'm not familiar with that case. Okay. Well, it was, it was recent, and, and what it turns out was that the Getty had uh, acquired this, her uh, archive of a public image, and then one of the Getty's uh, third-party uh, companies was just, you know, like these patent trolls kind of thing, just sending it out, and so it's... Uh, I didn't know if the EFF had been involved in that, you know. It, it's kind of yeah. like patent trolling, but this is a unique case because she had donated it to the public domain, and then they came back to her with a threatening letter, and so she's, you know, suing them back to say, you know, they've done this to other people. Um, yeah, lots of smaller foundations as well, some family foundations saying, oh, your foundation is interested in protecting the First Amendment, and here are our projects that work on the First Amendment. Would you like to fund one of them? Um, our original breakthrough in that realm uh, of foundation funding came through around electronic voting because there were a bunch of foundations um, back in the, I think the Bush versus Gore days that wanted to protect the integrity of the election system and they saw us uh, both our ability to see the policy issues and the technological issues in that as key to protecting the election from being stolen or invalidated, you know, by people breaking into the voting machines and changing all the votes. But interestingly, foundations tend as a, as a species to act like lemmings. If they've never heard of you, they'll never send you money. You can apply over and over and they, uh, they won't send you money. But it, once they send you money for something, then it's like, oh, now we know these guys, we can send them more money. And so after we broke through on one issue, then they started going, oh, and look, you're working on these other issues we care about too. And so that became a third pillar of our funding, which for a good many years were about three equal pillars. So we had rich techies and individual members and foundations, each paying about a third of what it costs to run EFF. Well, then it turns out an odd thing happened. Corporate sponsorship. Now, we've been accused by a few people of being like stooges for Google and things like that, which is pretty far from the truth. Um, it turns out you would never guess the corporation that provided like 80% of the corporate donations to EFF. I mean, I, I could invite you to try if you want to try, but I don't see any hands. It's called Humble Bundle Incorporated. <laughs> it was started by two college students in a dorm room because they knew a bunch of other students who had written video games that they couldn't get distribution of. And they said, well, we're studying marketing. We've figured out a way to market these. We'll put up a website. We'll let people pay whatever price they want for this bundle of like six video games. But it comes with a deadline. You can only buy it for the next three weeks. After that, we'll shut it off. So you better buy it if you want it. If you want even one of those games, you could send us five bucks and you get all six. 
And they were successful. Their first round of doing that raised more than a million dollars. And they actually they made a, a pledge that if they, if they raised more than a million dollars, they would free up the source code of all those games too, and they did. But part of their marketing model was besides getting to set whatever price you wanted to buy the bundle, you could also allocate a fraction of it to two different charities. One of them was called Child's Play, which buys video game consoles and gives them to kids in hospitals. And the other was EFF. And on the sliders, they just put up sliders where you would buy the thing, and they had it set by default that 10% of the money would go to the charities. But you could change that slider so 100% of the money went to the charity. Or zero. It was all up to you. And then these charities co-marketed the uh, video games. So we put out a blog post that says, hey, if you want a bunch of video games at whatever price you want to pay, they're over here. And oh, by the way, you'll be supporting EFF if you buy them. That, that dorm room effort uh, became a company and marketed hundreds and hundreds of video games and books and other things. And EFF became one of the charities that was in many of their bundles. And the result was they donated multiple millions of dollars to EFF. Um, that distribution model is now declining. I'm not sure exactly why. But the result is their donations have been going down over time. But for about a five or six year period, they were giving us two or three million dollars a year. And our budget nowadays is about ten million dollars, so that was that was a, roughly a quarter of it. So we had four independent pillars, the individual donors, rich techies, uh, foundations, and a few silly corporations. And the result of that was that EFF has been independent of all of them. None of them can control us. None of them can tell us what to do. And so we're free to follow our own principles and our own hearts in trying to do the best job we can for society. And that's where our funding comes from. I'm curious, in your opinion, what organizational models or tactics are best for activists that outside of the EFF that want to self-organize like for internet activism? For what sort of activism are you thinking of? Maybe like students on a college campus. Would you support people getting involved as individuals or forming chapters or like, the, like in the general public? Do you think that in-person meetings still have a place in internet-based activism? Or do you think that this could largely take place online? Oh, I think both are true. I think there's no substitute for meeting the other people around you who care about your issue. And not only does that help you educate yourself about the corners of it that you haven't thought of, but it also spreads the word to the people around you. It makes a social occasion. Um, it draws people in. EFF, but, but of course there's a huge place for electronic communication about these things. Um, and so EFF does both. We have 
what we call speakeasies that we hold around the Bay Area and out in other cities when an EFF uh, staff person or board person is going to be in New York City or Vancouver or Rio de Janeiro or whatever. We'll hold a speakeasy there. How do we make it important to, to people to support EFF-like things? It's become less of an issue in the last 20 years. Uh, we used to be seen as a niche, you know, as these sort of crazy techies who got involved in policy somehow. And what's happened is our issues have mostly gone mainstream. Um, so it's far more common nowadays that when I mention I'm involved with the Electronic Frontier Foundation, people say, oh, those guys, I love them, thank you. As opposed to, who the hell is that? It also helps that we do a lot of interacting with the press. One of our first roles, actually, when we were founded, was trying to explain technical issues to the press so that they would write coherent, intelligent stories about them. One thing that I learned from living with a journalist for a long time is being a journalist is like being a politician. You're expected to be an expert in whatever the news of the day is, and tomorrow you're expected to be an expert in tomorrow's thing and forget what it was yesterday. For journalists to be able to pull that off, they need sources who they can trust to tell them what's really going on. And a lot of journalists would call us up when you know, some computer got hacked somewhere or somebody's privacy got violated or somebody got censored or sued, they'd call us up and say, what are the real issues in this? Who are the, who, you know, whose ox is being gored here and why do we care about this? And we would try to explain it to them. And the result was we got written up a lot and we get quoted a lot in the press. We now have two people who work full-time just handling press inquiries. And most of those people, you never even see their names in the press because they're not being quoted. They're just passing the reporter on to, oh, you called in about this lawsuit about the public domain photographs? Here, let me get you to the lawyer who's working on those copyright issues and he'll tell you what the real story is. It's just been a a real flood of communication with, through, through the press th with us. And the result is it's given us a very broad reach around the world that when we have a point of view on these issues, the press is often willing to print it, at least as one of the ways they talk about the issues. Yeah. Uh, do you have any thoughts about... Uh it seems like any time you bring up the the idea of privacy, you're almost always talking about uh, policy. In that, you know, we need these human structures in order to make sure that privacy gets uh, gets retained. I've always thought that privacy would be enhanced if we could build it into the infrastructure itself, so that it wasn't an option to have privacy. If it it was built in, so that when the technology gets used, the privacy comes cooked in. Do you have any ideas about? where that might be going in the future, or is there anyone thinking about that sort of thing? Yes, actually we think about that a lot. One of the early sayings of, of one of our founders, um, 
is uh, architecture is politics. In technology, if you architect the system to make the right political choices, then those political choices don't have to be argued about later. So if you architect the system so that it doesn't collect everybody's information, you don't have to argue about who gets to look at it later because the information was never collected. Um, if you architect a system so that there's no central point of control, then you don't have to argue about who should exercise that control. And we, we actively try to work with technologists to look at the social implications of the systems they're designing and nudge them in the direction of better social outcomes, of wider distribution of power, of less opportunity to intercept or monitor, to less opportunity to have security issues. Um, we actively work with companies and with academic researchers and people like that to try to make the infrastructure more, uh, give us fewer things to argue about in the future. But also, we have a tech department that looks at opportunities where nobody's building that kind of technology and where we could step in and do that. So one thing that we did that took about three or four years between negotiation and finding partners and programming and debugging and rolling it out was a system for setting up encrypted websites automatically. It turns out, you know, we already have ways to make your web traffic private so it can't be monitored by a third party like the NSA or even a third party like your ISP or the guy next to you in the coffee shop. But those technologies, HTTPS, the secure web technologies, were only being used by big, big companies because they were too painful to deploy. And we saw an opportunity there that if we could automate the deployment of certificates for that, then it would enable a wide variety of smaller websites run by individuals, companies, blogs, things like that to automatically let people connect to them privately so that nobody can tell which things you're reading and what things you're posting. And we um, rolled that out about a year ago, and it's been a remarkable success. Just general discomfort with knowing that the company has your information. So I wanted to ask if um, anonymizing the data does anything like makes any difference to you. So let's say if there was some way to enforce that all data that was collected was anonymized such that they could never determine that the data was yours, but they could use the aggregate data to make, say, better products or, you know, they, because I think most of the time they probably are concerned mostly with, well, actually, I don't know, but a lot of times, some of the data is used probably just an aggregate and some maybe just like personal, you know, like, like um, uh, search ads, like when they, you know, target you from your search preferences so. Unfortunately, the, the simplest way to collect aggregate data is to collect all the details and then crunch through it later. 
it's actually harder to design a system that works that doesn't keep the individual details. And so most people don't bother to go to that effort. Um, a classic example that I've currently been fighting a lot is email tracking by companies. Um, if you run a mailing list, it's probably being run through somebody's company that either offers free mailing lists or like $5 a month for mailing lists, places like MailChimp. Those companies don't just post. If you send a message to that list, they don't just repost your message. They go in and change the message to insert tracking technologies so that they're, they're basically abusing the, the standards for sending multimedia mail by generating a unique URL not just for every message sent, but for each recipient of that message. So if you have a mailing list with a thousand people on it, they will generate a thousand different URLs and send each one individually to each recipient. And then anytime somebody accesses that URL, they know exactly which person accessed, was reading which message and clicked which link in it. And they store all that information and they think of this as a standardized marketing technique and I think of it as spyware. And I refuse to click those links and I refuse to support organizations that do that. The technique was developed by spammers to figure out whether you were reading their spams. And the data it provides is unreliable because there is no internet protocol for saying, uh, for telling the sender, oh, the recipient just looked at this message. So instead, they're, they're abusing existing protocols to try to get that effect, but the result is it's not accurate. If you read that message on your phone, it doesn't necessarily download the image that would tell them that you read it. And if you read it in this mail reader, it'll look like you never saw it. Whereas if you read it in that mail reader, they'll think you, you opened it. So not only is this marketing data inaccurate, but it's intrusive and almost none of the organizations that are doing it know that they're doing it. I regularly interact with, you know, more than a hundred nonprofits because um, I'm a donor to a bunch of nonprofits and I get on their mailing lists. And they send me these messages that are full of spyware and they're horrified when I send back, like, I didn't open your message because it was full of spyware and I won't send you any more donations unless you fix this because I don't support places that spy on their members. Do you uh, do you think that the way forward is um, regulation requiring the companies don't store personal information or at least make the consent language more clear and mutable? Or do you think it's uh, just, you know, the masses not using products that do things like this? Well, the European model has been to try to regulate these things. And my impression from... I haven't talked directly to European regulators about this. I've talked to people who interact with them 
and I've talked to people who are regulated by them. And all of those people pretty much agree that the regulation is an ineffective and intrusive joke. That it doesn't actually... Like, for example, there's a guy who invoked the European Data Protection Directive to say, okay, this says I have the right to get all the information a company has about me. And he sent the, a demand to Facebook, which has an Irish subsidiary that serves Europe, and said, send me all the information you have about me. And they sent him, like, four boxes of printouts, like, this much stuff. Um, and, you know, he's suing them in Europe for, uh, for collecting information about him that he didn't authorize. And it's going nowhere, of course, and Facebook is still collecting all that information about all the other 500 million people in Europe. Um, so I don't think regulation is particularly effective at this. I'm not sure what will be. There, is, there are some precedents for this. In the 1930s, when automated telephone systems were getting designed and built and deployed, um, they, they collected detail records about every phone call, who called who and how long they talked, and they used this for billing. And this is still the way it is in the United States. When you get your monthly phone bill, if you get a monthly phone bill, it has a list of every call you made. In France, this was not true for a long time after World War II because in France, when the Germans took over their country in the 1940s, they used that information to round up the underground. And when the French got their country back at the end of World War II, they said, we're not going to build a system that leaves that information lying around for next time. Unfortunately, I think it's going to take some, some mass privacy atrocities before people will pay attention to how much information they're giving to people who do not have their best interests at heart. And the current generation of people who are using cloud services and smartphones and all of that stuff have not yet been seriously burned by that and they will only change that when they get seriously burned. I wish I knew a way to prevent that. I don't. To figure out what you think they might want. You've heard of Operation Brandeis, uh, DARPA project? Operation what? Uh, Brandeis, the DARPA project. They're doing, um, it's the government's response to Facebook and Google. They're trying to uh, build new technologies to allow internet sovereignty. Um, so I was wondering if you'd heard about it yet. No, I'm not sure what it is. I mean, talking about sort of Internet sovereignty, I do... The Internet was designed as a widely distributed system that has no center. Anybody can make a little Internet that just connects up the people who they know with you know with physical wires or with radio signals or whatever we do this here at burning man different camps have radios that talk to an antenna in center camp 
and we can push packets around to each other. And when we want to connect that to the other networks, we don't need to go to some central authority. We just need to go to one other guy who we want to connect to and get his agreement, and we can start swapping packets with him. And the result has been a very robust system that's also very hard to censor. It's hard to take it down, either intentionally or accidentally. Similarly, the web was designed as a widely distributed system. You didn't need permission from any given place to publish a website. If you stuck a server on the internet, you could put up a website, you could put up 10 websites, you could host your friends' websites. Nobody needed permission from anybody to do that. That widely distributed system has been slowly and carefully surrounded by a small number of companies, Google being the primary one, that found an opportunity to make money out of tracking what people were doing but if your web access went from your laptop on the playa direct to somebody's server in New York City, how is Google going to find out that you went to that website? Well, yeah, if there's Google ads in that website, Google gets notified whenever you access that page. If that page uses the free Google fonts, they get notified by your browser when you download the font into the page. They have put up a whole series of free services that are designed to make a centralized flow of information about who's talking to who on the web. And my guess at this point is probably more than 50% of web accesses are now reported to Google. That's pretty frightening, considering that in the beginning the number was zero. Now, a couple of other companies have seen that opportunity, and they've tried to jump on that bandwagon, such as Facebook. Um, and they all have these slimy privacy policies that basically say, well, you really think of us as having one main service, like Facebook's service being the social media thing and Google's service being the search thing. But actually, we have a whole variety of services and we can freely aggregate any information we collect about you from any of these. So the Google Like button service, the G Plus button, such as it, if it still exists, um, is, is a service that they provide that you don't think of as a Google service, especially if you never click it, but it's watching you every time you bring it up, in a, every time you load a page that has that G+, or that F, or that LinkedIn, or that Pinterest, or whatever button. Each of those companies is getting a packet that comes back from your browser that says, he loaded that page at this time from that IP address. And they have succeeded in surrounding a widely distributed system with a logging infrastructure that not only serves them, but also serves the governments that are trying to monitor their own populations. 
And that's been done with the active participation of all of us. What plugin do I use for for web access, you mean? Well, I, I, use, I use Firefox, and I use NoScript. And I also use a cookie manager, of which there are dozens. Um, and EFF has put out a similar cookie-ish manager called Privacy Badger, which I think about two million people are using now, that turns on a web feature that says, I want you, your web server, not to track me. And then if it sends back cookies, and the cookies are more than just totally trivial, like what language you speak or whatever, then it will block those websites. It'll, it will refuse, it'll tell your browser, don't talk to those websites. And so rather than having a blacklist of places that are good and places that are bad, it will actually measure what the web services are doing. And when they do things that are intrusive to your privacy, it will block them. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. Now, as a compliment to this talk that we just listened to, I highly recommend that you go back to podcast number 522, Surveillance, Capitalism, and the Internet of Things, with Cory Doctorow. As you know, this was Cory's talk that was also given at the August 2016 Planque Norte Lectures, and I think that it was given the next day or so after the talk by John Gilmore that we just listened to. And together, I think they will provide you with all of the tools that you'll need to keep your privacy more secure in the months ahead. Now, uh, let me pass along what's taking place with what I've been calling the Psychedelic Salon 2.0, or simply Salon 2. Rather than uh, go into all of the uh, reasoning behind this right now and uh, the long-term vision... Uh, let me just give you the headlines. To get things started, I've now met with the Symposia group, along with Shauna Holm and Bruce Damer. And here's what we're going to do. I'll call that group the Salon 2 Curators right now, but please keep in mind that this is only the organizational phase and that eventually there are going to be many ways to become involved in Salon 2 uh, for you and for the rest of our fellow Saloners who would like to become involved as we move forward. And it's not going to be just podcasts, by the way. Anyway, uh, the curators are putting together some of their material and are going to create complete podcasts that will still be introduced uh, briefly by me. Uh, and we'll be numbering these podcasts as Salon 2-001, Salon 2-002, etc. At the same time, and uh, possibly even in the same week occasionally, as a Salon 2 podcast is released... I'll continue podcasting as I always have been as long as uh, my backlog of new material lasts. And uh, since I'm still receiving more new material each month, well, <laughs> it looks like I'll still be doing the current form of the podcast as well for uh, quite some time now. Now before long, I'll be posting uh, both on the forums and on our Slack site some requests for audio help that the curators are going to need. I know that uh, several of our fellow saloners have told me that they have audio expertise and are willing to help. And now we finally will have some very specific requirements for you. And uh, as we go forward each week or so, I'll bring you up to date as to uh, how we're doing on getting the Salon 2 podcast going. 
Oh, and uh, don't worry about you having to do anything to get both podcast streams, because I'm going to be including the Salon 2 podcast in the same RSS feed as you're now getting for this podcast. And uh, hopefully I've explained this uh, well enough that uh, for right now you get the idea that this is going to be a great year for podcasts from the Salon. Now, uh, next week, after the inauguration of a new U.S. president on the 20th, I'll post a podcast that I promised you on the day after the November elections here in the States. And uh, that is to give you my take on how I see the uh, chaos in the world unfolding over the next few years, along with a few ideas that I have about how we can not only make the best of the immediate future, but how we can also have some enjoyment along the way. Now, in closing... I want to mention the passing, last October 29th, of one of our most esteemed elders. I'm speaking about Francis Huxley, who was Aldous's nephew, and was one of the last of his generation of intellectuals to leave us. The uh, Guardian in the UK began its obituary of him, saying, Francis Huxley was an anthropologist fascinated by shamanism, myths, and religious rites, who strove to protect indigenous peoples. In the early 1950s, the anthropologist Francis Huxley, who has died at age 93, undertook pioneering fieldwork among the Yorubu people of the Amazon Basin. The resulting book, Affable Savages, from 1956, adopted a new reflexive approach to the study of culture in which the author's encounters with the other are reflected as much in personal reactions as in objective descriptions. Francis was a pioneer of this form of anthropological writing, a style that much suited his lifelong interest in shamanism and the altered states of consciousness often experienced by religious healers. While this novelesque way of writing was largely shunned by his contemporaries, eventually it became commonplace. Now, I won't read the rest of the obituary here, but I'll link to it in today's program notes, which you know you can find at psychedelicsalon.com. However, uh, I do have a few personal observations that I'd like to make right now. First of all, uh, I really like the name of the people who were the subject of Huxley's first book, the Yorubu. You see, uh, just previous to where I now am living, I lived on Yorubu Street, and I love telling people how to spell it. You see, Yorubu is spelled U-R-U-B-U. U-R-U-B-U. <laughs> but I digress. You uh, may find this strange, but whenever the subject of raw oysters comes up, the first thing that comes to my mind is my last encounter with Francis Huxley. Now, this could be a really long story, but I'm just going to give you the highlights for now. Probably forever. <laughs> first of all, uh, during the time that I was living in Houston, Texas, there were many weekends when I would drive down to the docks in Seabrook and buy a bushel of just harvested raw oysters. Then some friends would stop by my house and we would shuck and eat them in record time. I could easily eat uh, several dozen myself in a single sitting, and I was and still am a devotee of raw oysters. I just don't eat them anymore. Now, uh, fast forward a few decades from my Houston days as a lawyer to Cortez Island up in Canada. It was September of 2000, and there were about 80 of us attending an invitation-only conference titled Entheogenic Evolution. Fortunately for me, uh, my wife was invited, and so I got to tag along. 
It was a rather eclectic crowd with psychedelic writers, researchers, activists, therapists, and several prominent leaders of the worldwide Santo Daime movement, all together at Hollyhock for a week. And for me at least, this was the most memorable conference that I've ever been to. And someday I'll have to tell you about the drama that centered around the Daime group and the followers that they drew to the island, uh, but that's a really long story that's going to have to wait for another day. Now, one of the most fortunate things that happened to me that week was that the room that my wife and I were assigned was in between the room with June and Duncan Blewett on one side and the room with Jean and Myron Stoloroff on the other side. So getting to spend a lot of time with those four great elders, people who made such significant contributions to our current psychedelic renaissance, well, it was one of the most memorable times of my life. And there were also so many other interesting people at the conference as well. In fact, I think that that conference is where I first got to know Richard Glenn Boyer and his wife, Rye Sententia, both of whom have been featured speakers here in the salon, uh, as have the Stoloroffs as well. But, you say, uh, wasn't this story supposed to be about Francis Huxley? Well, it is, and in fact, it actually was the most memorable moment for me of the entire week. Now, you have to readjust your thinking about me here, because back then I hadn't even become Lorenzo yet. <laughs> I was still little Larry who was awestruck at being able to spend time with so many people that I'd only read about before. And being a big fan of the Huxley clan, I naturally acted like a psychedelic groupie and made it a point to spend some time talking with this last legend of the Huxley family. And so it was, on one of our last evenings there, that the wonderful staff at Hollyhock put on a huge outdoor barbecue that featured, uh, as you by now have guessed, it featured oysters, both barbecued and raw. Now, for quite a few years before this, I'd sworn off raw oysters because, well, it's very difficult to be sure that they're safe to eat. Things were different when I could drive down to the Texas docks and uh, talk with the boat crew that just came in with a fresh load. But eating raw oysters without knowing where they came from and who caught them was, well, it's just something that I wouldn't do anymore. At least, uh, I always resisted until that evening when, by the water, Francis Huxley came up to me with a plate full of raw oysters and offered them to me. Naturally, uh, little Larry tried to impress him with how safety-conscious I was about eating raw oysters, but <laughs> he only laughed at me and said, not only did these oysters just now come out of these waters right around the point, they are without a doubt the very best oysters that I've ever had in my life, and I'm not going to let you miss out on them. <laughs> well, I'm not saying that I gave in to peer pressure because I am far, far from being a peer to a man like Francis Huxley who, well, he's accomplished so much in his life. But I did give in to his great smile as I swallowed what would be the last few raw oysters that I've ever eaten. Sure, I've been tempted to eat another raw oyster from time to time, but if I ever do eat another raw oyster, it's going to ruin this story that I've been waiting to tell you for, well, ever since I started these crazy podcasts. And yes, uh, I probably should read you a list of some of the great things that Francis Huxley accomplished in his life, but to me, they, well, they don't mean nearly as much as my memories of that evening by the water at Hollyhock eating raw oysters with Francis Huxley. I've had a few perfect moments in my life, but that one there is right up near the top. And I guess that I should add one more thing here, and that is to mention the fact that for the last decade or so of his life, Francis Huxley was cared for by a woman who was his ex-wife, and 
by her current husband. Now, I've only met her briefly one time, but her current husband played a very significant role in an experience that was a real turning point in my own life. And while he most likely doesn't remember it as clearly as I do, I will never forget what he did for me. Which, at long last, brings me to the point that I've been trying to make here. In this life, uh, for me at least, it seems like it has been the little things that people have done for me that have made the most lasting impact. Those two men did what I'm sure they considered to be trivial things, like talking me into eating what my memory tells me was the most delicious raw oyster that I ever ate. It was an insignificant moment for him, but for me, it was obviously very significant. So, whenever you have an opportunity to do a kindness for somebody, don't pass it up. You may have a much more profound impact on them than you can know. And that something can be as simple as smiling at the next stranger that you see. Because most likely, uh, he or she is having a difficult day too, just like you are. And your little smile for a stranger lets them know that, yes, life is often a struggle, but you know how they feel. We're all in this together, you know, and sometimes your smile can make a much bigger difference than you think. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.